It's great to be here with everybody again this morning. It's been a good week, has it not? All right, yeah, I trust you had a a blessed week as well. Uh, Most of you guys know that I absolutely love to coon hunt. I've got to do that quite a bit here recently, but uh, I was thinking about it the other day. We were, I was talking with a buddy uh, back in back in the day, back when I was a kid. Uh, uh, a guy could actually make a living uh, coon hunting. Uh, you could actually make a little money doing that because the fur was pretty valuable. That was something that we used to do. Even like I said, even when I was a kid, that was I would collect furs, and once a year I would go, and that's where I'd get some spending money from. Uh, but by the time that I really got started hunting on my own uh, and up into my high school years. We, we hunted more for the fun of, of the, the training the dogs and listening to the dogs because the price of fur really just fell through the floor. And it wasn't, it wasn't worth messing with it anymore. We just enjoyed the dogs. Um, and this is not the first time that that has happened. Fur prices throughout history have fluctuated up and down. And it, it wouldn't be, I figured there was no way that I could come back again today and not tell a Jerry Clower story. Uh, and Jerry Clower tells a story of a time when the fur prices dropped in his neck of the woods in his day, and their solution was to turn from coon hunting to possum hunting. And so Jerry tells the story of a night when he and his buddy Marcel went out, and they took their dogs, and they went possum hunting. And they're going through the woods, and they hear, uh, as they're hunting along the edge of this railroad track, they hear the big freight train coming. So Marcel breaks out into a run, and he stands straddle the track, and he pulls out a red bandana and ties it around his lantern and goes to waving that lantern, flagging the train. And a hundred-car banana train squeaked to a halt. The engineer and the fireman jumped out, and they ran over to Marcel and said, What kind of emergency do we have here? And Marcel said, I wanted to see if y'all wanted to buy a possum. And the man looked at him and said, you mean to tell me that you have done stopped a hundred car banana train seeing if we wanted to buy a possum? You must be an idiot. But I like possum and ain't as much as we have stocked. What do you want for him? And Marcel said, well, we ain't caught him yet. I just wanted to see if you wanted one. The questions that we ask say a lot about us. They say a lot about what we believe. And for Marcel in this story, his question to the railroad engineer revealed that he hadn't really put much thought into his actions. He was asking the question before he had really thought it out. Now from talking to Pastor Mark, I know that some of you at least, those who have been in his Sunday school class, have examined each of God's Ten Commandments over the last, uh, the last few months. Uh, the Ten Commandments that God gave to Israel through Moses and have seen that we all fall woefully short of this standard, that, that, that we're all fully deserving of God's wrath and God's judgment. But praise God that that's not the end of the story, amen? Now look at me, uh, look, look with me this morning at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read a, an extended passage this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to pick up, we're going to start in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And we're going to see this is, as Paul Harvey would say, this is the rest of the story. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There it is. That's the key phrase right there. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. God treated Christ. This is what from uh, John John MacArthur. Many of you are probably at least somewhat familiar with John MacArthur, um, but he he put out a, 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 a tract, and in that tract he summarizes the reality that that we are under today. Though we deserve God's wrath, though we deserve God's judgment, each and every one of us do. None of us we could never be good enough to keep any part of the law, much less keep the whole of it. Jesus humbled himself. In obedience to the Father, he came to earth as a man. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He took on the wrath and the judgment that was due our sin and paid that debt on the cross in our place. And he offers us his righteousness as a gift, solely of his grace to those who would come to him by faith alone. And John MacArthur summarized that truth with this quote. He said, God treated Christ as if he lived your life, so he could treat you as if you had lived Christ's life. And that is, that's the gospel. That is, that, that salvation, that gift of righteousness is not based on our ability to keep the law. It's based, but it's, it's based on God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The law exposes sin. The law could never save. It was never intended to save. It's rather a mirror in which we are to look to see ourselves as we really are and point us to our desperate need of someone to save us from what we truly and genuinely deserve. Too often, rather rather than compare ourselves to God's standard, rather than stand in front of the mirror, we, we want to compare ourselves to others. Or we want to come up with our own standard to compare ourselves to. And we deceive ourselves into thinking that we are better than we really are. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we're pretty good people at heart. And therefore, we tend to brush off the gospel message as if that was for other people. Because we're unaware of our true predicament. We're unaware that we are dangling over a cliff, so to speak, about to plummet to sure destruction if someone doesn't reach out and save us. There's a story found in the Gospel of Mark where we see how this plays out in real time in the life of a young man that Jesus meets during his ministry on earth. It's a, a case study of sorts, and I have a feeling that as we look at this story, it will be all too relatable for many of us here. This young man, though he sees himself one way, the question that he poses to Jesus says much more about the true condition of his heart and what he truly believes. So turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 10. 
Mark chapter 10. This is going to be our base passage. We're going to camp out here uh, for our, the, the, pretty much the remainder of our time this morning. Mark chapter 10, we're going to pick this story up starting in verse 17. And we're going to walk through this verse by verse. So Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. And what we get here right off the bat is what I'm going to, what we would call a, a pressing question. And we're going to see that in the, how this man phrases this question. This is something that's on his heart, something that's bothering him. Verse 17 says, And as he was setting out on his journey, he being Jesus, Jesus was leaving the place where he was ministering, going to the next place, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus and the disciples at this point in time, just to give a little background, a little context, they were in Judea, and Jesus had been teaching the people there. Uh, he had multiple encounters with the Pharisees. There's, there's quite a bit of dialogue that takes place before this. Uh, but Jesus is getting ready to leave. He gets up and he starts on his journey, and this man comes up to him. It says he runs up and he kneels in front of him. And so in doing so, we, we see a sense of urgency in this man's manner. Something is bothering him. Something is unsettling his heart. He knows that he has to ask this guy, this teacher, this traveling man that he had heard so much about. He had to ask this man his question before he leaves. He recognized that there was, there was something different about this guy. Something different about his teaching. He calls him the good teacher. And then we see what it is that's unsettling. We see in his question what it is that's bothering him. Look at, look at his question. We see he lacks assurance of his eternal state. His question is, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we don't know anything about this man at this point in, in the story. We just know that here's a man that runs up to Jesus. He falls down in front of him. And he is wrestling with his conscience about where he stands before God. There's something missing. Something missing. Now, we want to be careful and not read more into the story than we actually know from the story. We know as a man from Judea, he would have had access to, he would have been very familiar with the law. Yet, he knows in his heart that there's got to be something else. There's got to be more to it, for he has found no assurance in the law. He has no idea. What well, There's got to be something else. What must I do, Jesus? Also, if you look carefully, if you paid attention in Pastor Mark's class, you might be able to spot right off the bat, you should be able to spot the fatal error in his logic right there in the question itself. His fatal flaw, the key phrase is, what must I do? What must I do? This is, this is a perfectly natural question for us to ask, right? When you have, think, maybe I'm speaking from my own experience here, so read into it what you will. But if you have upset your spouse, all right, or you know that they're upset about something, what is the question that most guys especially, guys especially, what is the question we go up and ask? All right, what can I do? Well, what can I do? How can I fix it? What do you want me to do? What, what must I do? Think about when, when someone is struggling with something, when someone is uh, sick, when someone is dealing with hardship or difficulty or loss in life, what do, what do we go up and ask them? What can I do for you? Is there anything I can do for you? That, that's a, we have this innate desire to fix things. 
to, to do something. What must I do? At least I know I do. And here we see this same idea. This man recognizes he's missing something. He's still lacking something. So he goes to Jesus and asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What else is there? What else have I got to do? And his question is ultimately flawed, and we'll see that in greater clarity in a minute. But right now, look at how Jesus answers him in Mark chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus gives him the obvious answer. The obvious answer. Verse 18, he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, at first, this may seem like Jesus is not answering the question, like Jesus is dodging it or kind of going around it. But in reality, he's getting to the core of what this man really needs to know. He's giving him, he's, he's cutting to the quick, if you will. He knows what we need, whether we ask it rightly or not. That's, that's the reality. Jesus knows what we need, whether we ask rightly or not. Now, to chase a rabbit for just a second, for a Christ follower today, this is a great comfort when we pray. God knows what we need. God knows what we need to hear. God knows what is best for us. God knows what we need to pray for, even if we don't necessarily know it all the time. And a lot of times we don't. God and His Spirit are one, and His Spirit is within us if we are His children. So God knows what we should pray for, even if, we're not, even if we don't do it right, even if we don't phrase it right, even if we don't speak eloquently. God knows. We see this idea in Romans Chapter 8, verses, started in verses 26 through 28. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, this man is not a Christ follower at this point, but he's a, he's a religious man. And still we see that Jesus sees past his question. He sees to his, into his heart. He sees the turmoil in his heart, and he cuts to what the man really needs to know. So rather than simply answer the question, he responds with a question of his own. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. And what he's saying there is, He's asking the man, are, are you saying that you think I am God? Or do you misunderstand the true definition of goodness? Because only one of, the, one of those two things is true here. He establishes the fact right up front that no one is good in and of themselves. There is no one good except God himself. There's no innocent person. There's no good person. No one is good except God. So let's just get that out of the way right off the bat. This man is not good. You and I are not good. No one is good. We are all sinners. We are all rebels against God at heart from birth. That is our nature. Look at Psalm 53, starting in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good unless we misunderstand or try to read something into that. He follows that with not even one. None. No one is good except God himself. 
Unless you think that that's just an Old Testament idea, look in the New Testament in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So, having established that there is no such thing as a good person outside of God himself, he then goes on to address the man's question itself. Here's where the obvious answer comes in. Look at verse 19. Mark chapter 10, verse 19. He says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus says, if you want to know what you have to do to inherit eternal life, if that's your question, then I'm going to answer the question. If you want to know what you have to do to earn it, you know the law. What do you have to do? Be perfect. That's it. That's all you got to do. Keep the law perfectly in all facets all the time. That's, all, that, that's what you have to do. Look to the law. It's written right there in black and white. What must you do to inherit eternal life? Simple. Keep my law completely and perfectly at all times. That's the obvious answer. If, you, if that's your question, what do I have to do? Jesus says, okay, well, be perfect. That's what you have to do. So have a great day. <laughs> but the, man, the man's not done. He's not satisfied with that. Look at his reply. And in his reply, we see both his ignorance and his arrogance. An ignorant and arrogant reply. Look at verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Here's the point at which we too often can relate. If you think about it long, you should pretty quickly spot a major problem with his response right here. All these I have kept from my youth. I've been a good person. We see right there the disconnect. Jesus has already said there's no one good except God himself. And the man said, well, I've been pretty good. I've kept, all the, I've kept the law. I've kept the checklist. I can look back at my life and I can check all the boxes. I have kept the law. So looking around him, he says out loud what many of us often say silently in our heads and in our hearts. He looks around at the people around him. He looks around at his life and says, I think I've done a, I've done a pretty good job. I'm a pretty good person. Having looked at God's law in depth over the last several weeks, we should cringe at his response because it's, you anticipate a rebuke coming. If, you're, if you grew up with siblings, a lot of times have you ever heard a sibling say something that was really dumb to your parents and you step back because you think they're fixing to get beat? All right, that's, that's kind of where we're at here. We hear him look at Jesus and say, well, Jesus, I've kept the law. Then everybody kind of wants to take a step back. Like, oh, wait, I don't know what Jesus is fixing to say, but he's fixing to get it. If we understand the law rightly, we see that none of us have kept the whole law perfectly. In fact, if, if we were honest, we have never perfectly kept any individual part of the law. We are lawbreakers at heart from birth. 
it reveals a great deal about this man that he stands before Jesus and tells him that he's kept the whole law from his youth. We take a step back expecting Jesus to strike him down for this arrogance. And on top of that, consider this. Just consider the, consider the question that he asked. If, let's just assume for a minute, if he really had kept the whole law from childhood, he really was as good a person as he thought he was, why was he coming to Jesus again? Why, why is he wrestling with his assurance if he's such a great guy? If he really has kept the whole law, then what's the, what's the big deal? What's the, what, why is this question so pressing? Why not just look at his life and find assurance in all the good things that he's done? Why not find assurance in his own perfection? Why was he so desperate to speak to Jesus? If he really was a good person, why did he feel the need to go to Jesus and ask if there's something else? We know, if you were in Pastor Mark's class, you should know it. It's because he was not nearly as good as he thought he was. And we know that his heart was just as sinful as everyone else's. He was merely deceiving himself. But look at what Jesus says to him. And here in Jesus' response, we see the compassion of Christ. Because Jesus doesn't strike this man down. Jesus doesn't. He, he, could, he could have just beaten him down for what he said. But he doesn't. He responds with compassion. Look at verse 21. It says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus doesn't rebuke him outright. He doesn't call him down in front of everybody. In fact, as much as the man's claim tells us about the content of his heart, Jesus' response informs us equally about his. It says he heard these ignorant and false and arrogant claims, and he what? He loved him. He had compassion on him. And here we see the undeserved love of Christ on display. He had every right to call this man down, to rebuke him, to chastise him publicly, to read him the riot act for his ignorance and his arrogance, but instead, his heart goes out to him in his lostness, and he responds with compassion. Much the same way that he treats our ignorance and our arrogance with patience and compassion. He's dealt graciously and compassionately with each and every one of us in this room because that's who he is. And that's why no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what has happened to you over the last year, we could all gather around the table and celebrate Thanksgiving because in Christ we all have something to be thankful for. But we dare not confuse Christ's compassion or Christ's patience with apathy. This love and compassion does not mean that he ignores the ignorance of the response. He doesn't let the statement go, but he responds patiently. He doesn't argue with him, though he would definitely have won. He, had, he held all the cards, but rather he ignores the false claim for a moment. He ignores the man's claim to perfection, for now, and he tells them that he has one thing left to do. Go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. You want to know what you have to do? Okay, you've kept all the law, great. All right, just go sell your stuff and come follow me. That's the only thing you have left. 
That's it. That's all you got to do. Now, at this point in the story, you might be like, hold on, wait, 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 wait a minute. Jesus, are, are you giving him a free pass here? Are you just going to let that go? I, I know he's not as good as he thinks he is. You know he's not as good as he thinks he is. So why does Jesus not say anything about it? Why is this man getting a free pass? Plus, many of us, we like to have the checklist. We want to know, what do I have to do? I can check all these boxes. I go to church. I, I do this. I do that. I do these things. So therefore, I, I know I'm good with God because I have checked all the boxes. And this looks like a checklist. Do this. This is something quantifiable. I can sell my stuff, I can give it to the poor, and I can follow Jesus, and then I'm good to go. This looks like a checklist. Do these things and you will be saved. But that's not the gospel message, is it? So what, what happened to grace? What happened to the faith that we talked about earlier in Ephesians chapter 2? So then we tend to turn the question around and ask ourselves, well, then is is this what I need to do to inherit eternal life? If I get rid of all my stuff, is that the key? Is that, is that what I've got to do? Remember, Jesus knew the man's heart. And Jesus knew how this man would respond. And the question or the, the instructions that Jesus gave this man is not a checklist. It's not anything that is inherently, it's not inherently good or powerful or spiritual in and of, of itself. But Jesus is getting at what's really going on in this man's heart. Look at how he responds. In verse 22, we see a revealing reaction from this guy. Verse 22, it says, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And here we see the heart of the matter. Here we see that Jesus' question actually was a rebuke. He didn't call the man out publicly, but he did rebuke him in what he said. It actually was a rebuke, just seasoned with salt, seasoned with gentleness, seasoned with compassion. We miss the whole point if we think this man having possessions was his problem. His wealth is not what's condemned here. Jesus knew his heart, and he knew in his heart how much he treasured his possessions. He knew how much he found security in his bank account. So much so that though he was religious, and though he tried to be good, and though he had attempted to keep the law, and even deceived himself into thinking he had done a good job, it was in his wealth that he had found his security. It was in his power, his position that he had found his identity, and he wasn't willing to let it go even for Jesus. Jesus' command to him to sell his possessions was not saying that such an act would actually earn him eternal life. Rather, it revealed to him who his true God was. In essence, Jesus says, you've kept the whole law, have you? Okay, well, let's start with the first command. Let's start with number one. You shall have, if you really have no other gods before me, then get rid of your stuff. Give your money away. Do you really love God more than your wealth, more than your possessions? And the man had to answer, no. He says the man went away, sorrowful. He thought he was doing so well, but Jesus exposed his deception for the lie that it was. He thought he had kept the law, but in reality, he hadn't even kept the first command. This is the situation we all find ourselves in. When we stand before God's law as a mirror and allow it to expose sin in our lives, it hurts. It's painful. 
it can feel hopeless when we compare ourselves next to God's standard rather than the people around us. When we look to what God says in His Word and compare our lives to that, we recognize just how far short we fall. And it looks like it's hopeless. And for this man, it was. This man walked away. He went away hopeless. He went away sorrowful. But the story doesn't end there. After he leaves, Jesus expounds on this encounter this encounter with those who are still there. He turns to his disciples and look at verse 23. We see then, now the teacher teaches. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then continuing on there, we'll read verses 24 and 25 as well. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now this is a text that we often like to avoid. We like to stop at verse 22 and not continue. Because how many of us are wealthy in this room? In general, now, most of you, at that point in time, most of you, when I asked the question, you looked around at the people around you. Okay, well, you know, compared to so-and-so, I'm, I'm really not that. Did, did you not? That's, a, that's exactly what we tend to do. So, in general, don't compare yourself to other people in the room. How many of you in here have significantly more than you need to survive? Right? And every single one of us should raise our hands. All of us. So let's make this, let's, let's turn and make this applicable to us today. Jesus says, if we admit that we are wealthy in, the, in this world, we are, all, we are all wealthy. Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for you and I to enter the kingdom of God. Let's get, get personal for a minute. Let that sink in for a minute. I've heard many attempts at explaining a symbolic meaning to this text and what the, the phrase, the eye of the needle, and all these things. People try to explain this away. But I'm convinced the most, most authentic reading is the plain reading. Ask yourself this question. Is it possible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, a sewing needle? Right? We would look at that and go, no, that's ridiculous. Of course a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. There's no question there's just as much chance of that happening, there's just as much chance of a literal camel going through an eye of a sewing needle as there is of you or I entering the kingdom of God on our own merit. There is nothing that you and I can do to inherit eternal life. And by nothing, I mean nothing, not a thing. Not by doing good things, not by not doing bad things, not by getting baptized, not by walking an aisle, not by getting emotional, not by praying a specific prayer, not by asking Jesus into your heart. No action of yours, not even your best intended effort, can earn you God's favor. Nothing can earn you God's favor. If you, you cannot look and say, I'm a Christ follower because I did or because I, then we're in the same boat as this rich young ruler. We are deceiving ourselves. Nothing that you do can earn you that eternal inheritance. 
the disciples came to this realization. The disciples recognized this right off the bat. Look at verse 26. We see a, a shocking realization. It says, And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? If it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, they looked around and said, Well, then who can be saved? How is that even possible? And the answer, according to our work, is nobody. Who can earn salvation? Who can earn, who can do the right things to earn God's favor? Nobody. Nobody. But Jesus is not done. Again, the story is not over. In verse 27, we see it all come full circle. And he points us back to God's grace. Look how Jesus ended this encounter. He says, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible. A camel cannot go through the eye of a needle in, according to, in man's world. It can't. It is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And this is the gospel. With man, no one will enter the kingdom of God. No one can keep the law. There's nothing we can do to earn eternal life. There's nothing that we can do to deserve that inheritance from Christ. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. It's a good thing it doesn't depend on us then, isn't it? That's what Jesus is getting at. The point isn't that we're all doomed. That's what this man felt because he wasn't willing to let go of his possessions. But that's not Jesus' point. It's not that we're all doomed. It's that we're saved from this hopeless enslavement to sin only by the gracious work of Christ. The man here asked the question that we have a tendency to ask. What must I do? do if, if I, I want to be saved. I want to, I want to have eternal life. So what do I have to do? Just tell me what I have to do and I'll do it. But that's the wrong question. There's nothing that you can do. We cannot trust in what we can do or in what we have done, but only in what Christ did. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved. He rose again from the grave so that we might stand before God, ransomed from sin and given the perfect righteousness of Christ. Salvation, as Paul said to the Ephesians, which we read earlier, is by grace alone, through faith alone. Not of anything that you did or anything that you can do or anything that you will do. It is by grace alone. There will be found no assurance of salvation apart from trusting in the grace of God. Your spirit will never be settled you will never have assurance. You will always struggle as this man did. As long as your claim to salvation, as long as your claim to belong to the family of God, starts with the phrase, because I. That's why you have people who, have, who ask Jesus into their heart 25 times in their lifetime. That's why you have people who walk an aisle over and over and over again. That's why you have people who are seeking and searching and they're never finding because they're trusting in what they did and they're not trusting in what Christ has already done for them. If you trust in your work, your effort, the law will drive you to despair and fear for there is no power to save in what you do. If you're trusting in what you do, your actions will condemn you every single time. 
if you're trusting in the law, in the works of man, the law will always and only condemn. There is no hope apart from trusting in the grace of God alone. When you look into the mirror of the law of God, do not be driven to despair as this young man was, but run to the promise of the gospel. It's such a beautiful picture because, when, again, when we look at our lives, we see that none of us deserves it. None of us deserves anything but God's wrath and judgment. And so if it depends on what we can do, there's nothing we can do today that will undo what we did yesterday. There's nothing that we can do today to take away the sinful heart that we were born with. There's nothing that we can do to erase our past. We need someone to save us. We need someone to do what we can't do. The gospel is the good news that though there is nothing you can do, Christ has done all that is necessary. And He offers that redemption and that salvation to you as a free gift of grace. And this gift is open to any and all who would come to Him by faith and trust in His grace alone. Regardless of your circumstances, no matter your past, His work is perfectly sufficient for you in every way. There's nothing that you can add to it. As we close our time in the Word together this morning, if if you're here this morning and you recognize that you have been trusting in your own effort, that you've been trusting in your own actions or your own goodness or your own ability to do the right things and check the right boxes, then let today be the day that you let go and trust Christ. Pastor Mark will be at the front at the conclusion of our service this morning. If anyone would like to talk or pray or set up a time to meet and discuss the truth and the power of the gospel, don't waste this opportunity. That offer is open to you. We love you all, and it has been a tremendous blessing to be here with you all again on this Lord's Day. Let's, let's close our time this morning in, in prayer as the praise team comes forward. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. Lord, For we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for loving us when we were unlovable. Lord, we thank you for looking on our ignorance and our arrogance with kindness and compassion. We thank you for doing what we couldn't do. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to not seek assurance of salvation, to to not seek or find or look for hope in the things that we have done, but rather to trust in what you've done, to trust that you perfectly accomplished this for me. And that when we stand before God the Father and He asks, why should, I, why should I admit you into my presence? Why should I grant you this inheritance that you claim? That we would be able to say, to look and say, I don't deserve it, but because of what Christ did for me. Jesus earned it for me. He secured it for me and He gave it to me. Lord, I pray that everything that we do, Lord, that that all our hope, that all of our joy, that all of our trust will be found in what you did. That you would humble us. That we would, Lord, because it, it it's our pride that gets in the way. I have to do something. What can I do? I have to earn it. God, we can never earn it. We can never repay you. So let us live each day from here on out with thanksgiving and with praise and 
intentionally to bring honor and glory to your name, not so that we can earn something from you, but because of what you've done for us. Lord, I pray as we continue to worship your name this morning that our worship would be pleasing to your ear. Lord, that everything that's said this morning, everything that's done, everything that's been given this morning would advance your kingdom and would bring honor and glory to your name. And we thank you for allowing us to be a part. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.